Hi, and welcome to Practical Reliability. I'm George Williams, and we are live at the 35th International Maintenance Conference here in Marco Island, Florida. My guest right now is Kevin Price. He's VP of Global Strategy at Hexagon. Welcome, Kevin. That's right, thank you. Kevin, for folks that may be unaware, who is Hexagon and, and what are you all about? That's a great question. So Hexagon has been around actually for probably around 40 years. And they originally started with tools that would go out and acquire the condition of assets. And then based on that condition, you'd be able to understand how to be able to maintain it better. And over time, what they did is they took that physical world and they made a digital image of it. So they took a digital reality of it. So they went out and looked at a piece of equipment. They have different tools to do laser, laser LIDAR, and radar, um, different ways to be able to see that piece of equipment, different types of heat signatures to do, and they create digital realities of that. Now on top of that, they apply their tools and their techniques, which is their artificial intelligence, their machine learning, their modeling tools, and things like that. And what they do then is based on what they see in the physical world, based on what they're able to model in the digital, they're then able to do autonomous functions. So if you could be able to make tweaks and changes of how you operate that piece of equipment, or even how you schedule it to be maintained, shouldn't that in time be something that could be automated? And the answer is yes. Um, they bring us into the mix actually on October the 1st, so it wasn't too long ago. We came through an acquisition. Um, the, the original name of the, the, the product was uh, N4EAM. Yeah. The acquisition was actually done October 1st, but the idea for us to come in is to be that platform of asset management. Uh, we're a market leader in what we do, so when we look on the market space, and these market guides, and searches, and things like that, a lot of times you'll you'll find us as either our N4EAM past name, or even before that, it was a company called DataStream. Right, right, so right. So for Right, for me, it was DataStream, the old MP2 solution, yeah. EAM, and, and now everything is under the hexagon. Of yeah, so I can give you a little bit of visibility into my age by, tell, <laughs> by telling you by telling you I've been doing this for almost 25 years yeah, uh, yeah. I've launched a little over 80 percent of what we have in the portfolio so I came from the data stream side right and uh, what happened is we were doing the mp2 product line for the longest time back in the 90s um, I launched that from a DOS application to Windows so that maybe give you a little bit of a hint to when I was starting doing this and then the thing called the web came, so we started doing that kind of stuff. And what we found was the MP2 application was good for work order execution, but it really wasn't asset-centric. Um, so asset condition, inspection, all the different types of things that you find at this conference around reliability and sustainability just weren't there in the work management module. So um, we went and did a world scan, so to speak, and we bought a company in the Netherlands um, named SQL Systems, and that evolved into a new asset model for us. And we saw it as potentially replacing what we did with MP2, and it did. Um, in 2000, we actually relaunched it, rewrote the front end, so it was asset-centric. And while we were doing it, what we thought is, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could put this into the cloud and have it where it's a subscription? Because we were already doing this with an e-commerce network, and sure enough, we did. Uh, we made it to something called tenancy at the time, which was new, now it's, it's called a multi-tenant system that was right. in 2001 continued on and on and on and grew into different things. And then 2006, we were acquired uh, by a company called N4. And N4 had a lot of ERPs, uh, workforce management, human capital management, they didn't have any asset management systems. So they right. brought us on. And at that time, that was 2006, 2004, another one in our space, um, uh, PSDI, they were bought by IBM and the Maximo solution was there. So there was a little bit of a change going back and forth in the space. 
So we continued on and continued on and we were developing out what we could and we did different things and developed out different solutions and we're going constantly back to the principles of reliability, of sustainability, of prediction and modeling. And what it really got us into was a space where we were almost not really looking at ourselves as enterprise asset management anymore. Just like we went from work to asset, right. now we're looking at enterprise asset management asset performance. And what we're trying to do there is our customers want to see more modeling, more what-if scenarios. Um, what if I were to be able to influx another $2 million into what would it look like? Or what if I were able to replace this asset with a different type of efficiency, what would it look like? And that's a, it's a different type of scenario. So started building for it, got a little popularity with it. And uh, Hexagon came along and said, hey, we're doing a lot of this physical world replication and automation in it, but we're doing some of this modeling stuff. It would be good to, to, to look at. So they went through the due diligence process and they acquired us. And it happened um, as an agreement to acquire July 6th and uh, money exchange hands October 1st. And the acquisition from the data stream to Infor in 2006 was 200 million. The same code set, the same everything was done October 1st for 2.82 billion. Wow. So it was a big increase. Yeah, no kidding. And now some value there. Yeah. <laughs> I wish wish it was was that way for my bank account. But not, not, <laughs> it doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't no. work out that way as much as you, you would hope. Um, at least you're up here on my team hoping, but uh, like my wife and my kids. But anyway, so what we're here now to do is what can we do in that model that Hexagon has? Um, because they're a leader in digital twin. They're a leader in uh, GPS and GIS systems, radar and laser and, laser and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but they're looking to what can we do to take EAM to embed it into the hexagon world. And yeah. That's a long answer with a little bit of history, so sorry about that. No, 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 it's great. It's, it, you, know, it's real, you want people to have some brain recognition that's and right. when, you, when you, the acquisition takes place, they may not know emphatically that you know, it's, an, it's in for, right? Well, it's and, and, it's uh, tough now because it's a, a as you can see right now, they didn't see it on the, the, the audio, but I, I put my own little hexagon pin, my hexagon name on it, <laughs> but I still got a backpack with N4 on it, so right, it's, right, it's, right. we're it, in There's transition. a transition, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I got to get rid of some ties and some socks <laughs> and things like that, but I'll, I'll get all those brought in. The hexagon family, it's interesting. Um, they have a lot of different divisions around the world, um, about 20,000 employees around the world. They're based out of uh, Sweden, mm -hmm. Stockholm, yeah. and they're traded on that market. But uh, for us, we're still based here, and the good news is when they did the acquisition, um, they carved out the EAM business of N4, so a little over 500 people came, um, about 3,500 customers came, right. um, and all the business that we have in the cloud and on-premise and everything else came over. So in an ideal world, our customers won't even notice the change because it'll be smooth in the transition, right. and we just did an upgrade um, to the cloud in November and uh, to a few thousand customers, and we didn't have any disruptions at all, so that was smooth. But now it's, you know, how do you get back into that market? As you mentioned with brand recognition, in a different way, in a new way, and go through, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. But if you look at the covers and you look what's there, and you compare that with, it's the same code that's been around for a while with us, we just made it better. Right, right, right. So walk me through some of that. So what's interesting to me is the transition to value from the asset. Mm. Typically, a CMMS or EAM system is is centered upon the work, and or centered upon the maintenance strategy. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the maintenance strategy in and of itself doesn't derive value of the equipment. It has to operate to, to, for the company to see value. It does. And so and uh, all those parameters, <laughs> right. And in many ways it, it doesn't, but has nothing to do with maintenance. Mm-hmm. And so now you're coupling with an organization that creates digital twins that can look mm-hmm. at those sensory information and let you know that your efficiency of operation is is dwindling or that you're having minor stops or whatever the issues may be. Yeah. And now that's coupled directly to the maintenance solution. What, what comment you made that's really interesting to me is the automate the next step piece. Yeah. Because typically maintenance responds, they don't replace a part because nothing broke, but they tweak something and, and the line runs. Yeah. You're now going to start capturing. Well, what did that? What was that? What adjustments were made, either at the HMI or someplace yeah. else? And how can we now trigger that automation to take place without necessarily having a response from maintenance? And, and not because you know it's not good to have maintenance people. They have plenty of great work to do, but more around let's eliminate the loss of efficiency as quickly as we possibly can. Right. So you mentioned really complex stuff there, easily. <laughs> so you mentioned That's things. What I do. You, there's three <laughs> concepts there, and I want to talk about those, and then I want to articulate what we're doing with them. Um, one is predictive maintenance, the other is artificial intelligence, and the other is machine learning. Yeah. So the predictive maintenance is what EAM has always done. Mm-hmm. I can predict that something's going to fail if all things run the way that you have them running today. Monitors, condition, um, different types of, of sensors that go on, so that I can tell you it's going to fail because it just it's linear math. Yeah. Then you have artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence looks at problems and statistics that are going for it. So I can be able to predict based on certainty, not based on history, but based on the likelihood that it's going to happen. Um, the third is the machine learning, which takes the predictive maintenance and the artificial intelligence consideration and then learns from the actions that you did in the past. So as I start to change it in a certain way, well, Jim actually, he, he ran to the same failure code and this is what he did. So now that needs to retrain the artificial intelligence algorithm that you did for the likelihood of statistics, which re- retrains the predictive maintenance, on and on and on and on. Right, right. All that has to go into play. With what we have in, um, as an example with Hexagon, um, Hexagon is um, got lots of divisions. And one of the divisions, as an example, is, is mining. As an example, they have a few hundred really big mines. Um, and one of those customers, it's all public on, on the, the Hexagon page if you ever want to go take a look, but they have 600, um, 400 ton carrying capable trucks that pick up dirt and move stuff, right? Um, not a single driver in any of them. Um, they have driverless vehicles that do this. They have. Um, collision avoidance that do this. They have these big excavators that dig the material out and there's not a single operator in them. So you're talking about a huge, huge plant that's heavy and labor intensive in what it does that is reducing the amount of labor that's required into it and becoming a lot more safer and having equipment run better. So they're able to do through their imagery of Digital Twin, they're able to look at their sediment definition of how they scrape away material, where to scrape, how deep to scrape, and how and where they're going to run into problems, they can do that. There's right. algorithms behind that. There's machine learning based on what was done in the past that can tell you that. So in that visual world, they're able to put a digital reality to it and then able to visualize where to go. Um, those trucks, they're able to see the, the definition of their roadways and change their roadways so they can take a different path because as that road gets eaten away, they can no longer drive on it. So And they're pretty heavy, so they have to be able to take that consideration to go. So their physical world has a digital reality onto it that can teach those trucks how to drive. On top of what we do is we can say 
all the telemetry that are on those trucks. Tell me everything that you can about that. Give me all the sensor data, all the history data, based on what I see and how I maintain it, and original equipment specifications that are going on, and environmental conditions, and operation. I can tell you it's probably going to fail Thursday between 3 and 5. Right. And while it's there, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go all the preventive maintenance work that's coming due. And while it's there, I'm going to do an inspection. And while it's there, I'm going to make sure that Jim, who is the guy that certified that truck, is going to be on shift. And he's going to be there. And while he's there, I want to make sure that he has the right type of tools to lift that thing up because you can't lift it up by yourself. I need to have, I mean, hell, come on. This thing, this, this, this tire alone is eight feet tall. Right. So, I mean, you have to have the right tools in place. You have to have the right materials in place. You have to have the right crew in place. I can do all that in the AM. So really, as it's driving the, the technology to drive it, the technology to avoid it, the technology to make those decisions that Hexagon plays into, I can be a part of that from an EAM perspective. So when it comes back in the vehicle maintenance facility, I can have everything done, and then it can go back out again. So this is an example of that evolution that EAM can do within this world of the physical reality with its, the, 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 the model that we provide, the data that we provide to that digital model and that digital twin really is transactional metadata. I know everything about that asset transactionally because I capture it in my work management system. I know everything about it from an expectation perspective of efficiency on how it's supposed to operate yep. because when we bought the thing, we knew how it's supposed to operate and those are part of the original specs. Those are the benchmark specs. And that's where APM comes into play is as I start to change around different material, if I start to look at different ways to operate, if I look at ways to manipulate that asset, what does it look like and how those are the modeling things that we can do on EAM. So it starts to really blur in, in between right. that entire that entire mix, which is interesting to see um, because that same model in what you find with those mining trucks, I can do in anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be something that's on a manufacturing line. It could be a shop floor. I could be looking at an engineer to say, hey, listen, we're going to reconfigure this line to do a whole new production line, and I under need to understand the time that you need. And that was typically a work management function, but it can also be an equipment function. So for us, the, making the transition into this group and starting to look at what value brings in is really redefining where where people own those assets in the organization. A chief financial officer is, is interested on the capital asset plan that's three to five, seven, ten years. The asset investment plan that's there from 12 to 24. And they want to make sure it's funded correctly. Yeah. The, the, the operations want to make sure we can hit our runs, we're going to hit our, our revenue targets. I'm okay and from a safety perspective of what it's going to be. So these types of visibilities was difficult to come to. And I've even seen where CFOs have to wait four, five, six months before they can get even a visual report of it. Um, but now we can do all this in real time. Yeah, I, that's so, so amazing. Yeah. In industry, there's so many silos between those groups that have existed for so many years, and your solution's actually knocking all of that down and getting down to how do we get the most value out of the equipment, which means streamlining all the processes that happen that are non-operational. That's right. In addition to creating the capability of longevity, high quality, um, and efficiency of output from whether it's a mining truck or a packaging line. It doesn't matter what it is, but the idea of giving those access points, those visibility marks, and trying to understand where it is, it brings everybody into being part of the maintenance organization. Everyone needs to make sure that asset's running. It needs to make sure it's running effectively. It's, it's running the way it should. It's costing us what it should, um, which is good and bad. I mean, historically, maintenance organizations love the fact that they have some anonymity. 
so they can sit there in their, their basement and nobody knows you're just doing their job. But now this data can make it visible to anyone. Yeah. And they can be able to have that. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing because you, now you have visibility. Maybe your maintenance center can get better funding. Maybe you can be able to quit focusing on things that aren't value add for you and your employees. Maybe you can get better training. But in order to do any of that, that's wonderful stuff. But you, you know well, and I do too, you have to build the foundation of what reliability even is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it starts. And right? That's really what this conference, I like this conference about, is because it's the vernacular of what reliability actually means, what risk mitigation actually is in a maintenance organization, what sustainability means, because everyone has a different definition. And you gotta, you got to get those folks in the same sheet of music and you got to get them talking the same. So when we always go into organizations, we say, hey, listen, what's the number one piece of equipment that if it fails, CEO knows about it? And you'll have a different definition from different people, oh, yeah. but that's at least a first conversation. Um, if it's that piece of equipment, yeah, well, that's, that one's for, for our, our number one um, buyer. And, and that's a $5 million piece of equipment. If that messes up, oh dear God, we've missed everything. Well, then there you go. That should have the, the, the utmost potential of your focus, right? Yeah. If you go to a casino, it may be a light bulb because if a light bulb goes out on a table, oh God, you're screwed. Or the air conditioning system, if it's too hot, it's too cold or whatever, they, they'll vary. But at least have some type of methodology to be able to build out that definition of that vernacular, of that conversation, of that way to be able to think about reliable and sustainable operations. It has to start from there. I can do all this other stuff because it's tech. It's what I do. It's what we do. But, and it's just a tool at the end of the day. But you have to build that culture first. And that's a foundation of data. That's a foundation of everything else that builds in. If you don't have that structure, it's going to be tough. Yeah, and I, you know, the interesting pieces for me are always around the evolution of culture. Mm -hmm. And when folks come to a conference like this, and their maintenance folks, I, what I hope they leave with is a better way to articulate their value to the business, especially if they're newcomers to this space and they come to a conference like this. You know, they're all looking for how do I stop the machine from breaking, but that's not really the goal. The goal Great. is your company mission, right? And if your company mission is, you know. Whatever the case may be, your your articulation of how the maintenance organization supports that goal is how you fund being a better maintenance. Absolutely, it's how you look at a solution like yours um, and can articulate to senior leadership why it adds value. Being able to speak the language both vertically upward. <laughs> and downward, right? Mm -hmm. Because now you got to convince your maintenance technicians why they should be, why looking you should at be doing this. Yeah. like this, right? And and they just want to be the hero when it breaks, right? And there's a whole evolution. We always call those rock here. star maintenance technicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we call that captain unreliability. Oh, I see that. Right That's not, I'm going to take so, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I mean, coming to a conference like this and, and talking to um, sponsors like yourself, uh, it really is about understanding the language and how do I it go really back is. and articulate things because if the foundation isn't there, like you said, they can want the shiny technology all they want. It's not going to help them if, if they don't know how to um, implement it in an effort to create the value. It's a journey, man. I mean, this, it, to be able to understand how to even just do a proper data gathering on the equipment that you have and getting template data, nameplate data, getting um, the, the failure codes. I mean, there's some organizations out there, we ran into a couple of our partners, they're actually creating subscription content 
So I get all these pieces of equipment. What do you need? Well, it would be great if I knew how it's supposed to run. And the OEM is saying, okay, this is how it, you, this is what you should see. And they're not always right, but they're they're right as so much as their SLA is concerned. Um, if they have an right. SLA that they want to hit, they're going to say, well, that's yeah, you're not operating it as it should. You just shouldn't be doing. Well, that's not always the case because I, I now I bought this and I put it in a different climatic condition, and now I have salt salinity problems or whatever. But the issue is, is I, I wish we could be able to get a better way to be able to capture it. I think that content is starting to come. I mentioned we have partners that have failure codes that are thousands of them. Right. And, and it's not that, you know, it's a one size fits all for a failure code, but I mean, it's at least a start is to be able to get to some type of semblance of, of a, because a lot of it is you have to write it from scratch. Yeah. And you have to go out and there's people that love that kind of stuff. That's just where they live, breathe, eat and die. They enjoy it. I've got a friend I've been working with for almost 30 years, and he's just like, Kevin, man, I just want a PM equipment. That's all I want to do. <laughs> I just want a PM equipment. And Whatever do the makes right you thing. happy, though, I mean, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, you you got to find people that live in there and understand it because that kind of value and that kind of struggle and that kind of setup will pay benefit yeah. in a big way. I know, I you know, when I worked at uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb BMS, mm. we, we we were a Maximo house, but uh, we, our failure code library was 22,000. Right. 22,000 codes. I mean, we, we had a team of people that worked for a whole year to look at asset classes and determine how they failed. The remedies were pretty generic, replace part, clean part, sure. that kind of stuff. But the problem cause stuff was If you don't have that, the though, I mean, it's really difficult to even succeed. Yeah. Uh, even have a chance to succeed if you don't have something that's built in, especially when the selection goes, you, you're going to always select the failure code as the first one that's on the drop down. And that's always going to be uh, the case. Yeah. yeah we right? had I mean, nothing called general, nothing <laughs> called doesn't apply. Like, we, you were forced to, I mean, you were only forced to do that on, on breakdown maintenance, right? I mean, it. You know, PM doesn't require a failure code. What we did interesting, and, and you may find interesting, was we actually connected the failure code to the job plan step. So our job plan Perfect. step was, because in that particular system, the tasks are sub-work orders. So all that data is actually there. It's just not shown on the screen. So at the job plan level, we actually opened that up, and at the job plan step, so if you said replace, you know, inspect seal, yeah. um, it said centrifugal pump, so you'll fail, you know, la uh, leak, and then, you know. Your you possible know exactly options. What, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's, you need to have the flexibility of the system to do that. And some of them have flexibility to withstand upgrades, some of them don't. Um, some of them, if you, you grade, you do all this work in, like, oh shit, we got a, we got a patch that's coming up, and you yeah, don't need yeah. to worry about stuff like that. Right, right. That's why we spent a lot of our time in well, 20 years ago to make an architecture where we can upgrade with zero downtime and upgrade with zero impact. And yeah. we look at, well, we're advanced. Well, yeah, we are, but you know, we did that for a reason because as they start to build in their own nuance, I don't want to screw that up. Right. I want to right. keep that protected. So as you go from one version to the next, whether it be just a patch, a quarterly update, or a yearly impact, you shouldn't screw the business up because the tech's not there. Yeah, no doubt. The tech oh, should I mean, just be yeah. invisible. It should be something that's helping. Yeah, the one thing we hated all the time was regression testing. Oh, patches, you shouldn't have to all do that, that stuff. Like, <laughs> right, and and I guess the, you know the solutions that are coming out today fall much in in line with um, it's a subscription, so it is what it is. We do the upgrades you get what you get. So it's not necessarily you get what you get, it gets, it, you get what you have implemented, and you get what you've configured. Right. Um, and so you, you have a ton of capability. We actually, I mean the system's been around first line of code since 1986. So it's been around for a very long time, and it has a lot, we now have a little over 2,000 forms. But you really consume all that. 
And the answer is no. Right. But the issue is, is we we we're unlike other ones in the market space. We keep one single code set, and the configuration you have go on it. So that allows us to be able to upgrade, patch, move on, and not screw up anything that goes on. So. It, there's there's nuances that go into these tools that you should have when you think about your future, how you roll it out, how you build it through, and we can help with that. But again, just to not to beat the same horse, but it, it goes back to your culture and how you had it set up and how you use those things. If you yeah, don't yeah. have someone now that's physically going out and making 22,000 failure codes, you know that may be a, a tough tough job and it may not be a popular job <laughs> but i guarantee you it's a valuable job yeah I yeah mean, by down the road far, yeah, by yeah. far if you don't have any of that stuff built in then it just doesn't pay out yeah i mean we were able to do all kinds of analytics that told us where we were having issues and where to update our strategy and there's always the argument too that because well it's 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 it's, it's not the way it's not the way I operate the equipment. It's the way it was maintained. It's the maintenance guy's problem. The maintenance guy's well, hell no, it's the operator's problem. Yeah, your yeah. guy, you don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing. And so there are arguments, even like that, that I've seen get quickly resolved when you have data to right. be able to actually prove it. And, and the failure data comes into play when that happens. Yeah, I, even, I, I, I can't tell you how many places we go where they have no work order that says I went out and helped operations but didn't replace a part. <laughs> and and we, like we go in and we talk to these organizations and they True. and they're like I don't really know where to where to start to kind of, you know, figure out what what we can get better at. And I always tell them just run a query. Show me all the work orders you did on assets that have no material costs because they're all your headed. They're going to tell you. Right. And right. like like just basic stuff like that leads them to the path of understanding what your solution can do for them. Because once you get to a point where you can, um, through algorithms and through yeah. machine learning, start predicting those things and saying, hey, you know, you guys are going to get a call if, if we don't automate some adjustments here. You're right. I think there's a really clean path, even if they want to dabble, right? At least give me an alarm and I go make the change until I trust your system enough to automate it for That's me. very true. And yeah. what we're running into as well is um, these data elements, there's a lot of them. Um, and people, it's a deluge. They don't really know where to start, where to begin. Um, one of the things we did as a webinar not too long ago um, was with Fleet Owner, and um, it was with Bob Zimmer from PepsiCo Frito-Lay, and they have telemetry systems in all their, their vehicles that transport their goods. So great, wonderful, that's a lot of data. And his answer has always been, well, um, throw it in the lake and we'll figure it out later. And it's true. I mean, you may not have everything set up to do all those failure analysis done yet, but if you have some piece of equipment spitting out data, capture it. Capture it, put it somewhere. Data scientists that are coming out are absolute wizards. These people that are coming out are amazing to be able to, to find out what they're doing. And if you give them just a little bit of the maintenance history, a little bit of, of what we've done, they can do these justifications. And this is an example, you know, they ran into a scenario where it was operator blaming the maintenance, maintenance blaming the operator, and they were able to capture the data in a short amount of time and prove one of them right. I'm not gonna say which one. Yeah, yeah. But you can go to fleet owner and see that. But the issue is, is there's also that problem where there's too much data. Um, and you can't be afraid of it. You can't be afraid of it. You have to be able to, to capture it. You'll work on it, it'll come through when it makes sense, but get back to the basics, man. Yeah, always yeah. return back to the basics. You, you can always choose to not use data you've collected. You yeah. can never choose to analyze data you didn't collect. So <laughs> You can't analyze it if you have nothing to look at on a spreadsheet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm a big fan, and because you hear people all the time say, well, you gotta be conscious of how many data points we're gonna, no. No, you don't, man, you don't can. worry about that. Memory is cheap. It's like, like my that. phone, yeah, my yeah. daughters take, at least, I mean, they're teenage daughters, so they take thousands of pictures of just themselves 
else every day, <laughs> let alone other friends or everything. And they don't give a damn about storage anymore because it's digital. They right. can just get rid of whatever they want. I mean, growing up, you know, I was the, the, the Kodak guy. I had my cousin work for Fuji. I got film for free, so I didn't really give much, but I couldn't take what I didn't have film for. Right. And that was a consideration. Now it doesn't even matter. Right. It doesn't even matter. And that's the same thing with data is the data sets, I can put it in the cloud, or I can put it local, I can put it in a bunch of different places, don't worry about it. Just start gathering it, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. start holding it in, and then as you build the framework for your foundation of reliability, or sustainability, or social responsibility, or efficiency, or whatever you're trying to go for as an organization, that data will come into play. Absolutely. But you gotta build that structure, and you gotta start building an understanding of why that data makes sense. Uh, there's a bunch of it that's there, but not all of it makes sense. Right, right, You just right. gotta be able to figure it out, but if, if you're getting data, or you have the opportunity to get data, don't 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 sway away from it. Go ahead and take it. You can go somewhere because this stuff is cheap to store in the cloud. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, so um, how do folks find out more information about uh, your organization? So we have a booth here, uh, of course. If, if anybody's here at the show, would be able to take a look. It's the exhibit hall that's built in there. Um, hexagon.com is the main domain. Um, we have an email piece off of that, so eam.hexagon.com. Um, if you still remember us as N4, you can go there too because we're still working with them too. Um, but it's an opportunity for you to be able to see some videos, some case studies, lots of demonstrations, things like that. I'm responsible um, for the, the strategy that we take around the globe for different verticals, different reasons, because I've been doing this for almost 25 years. Um, but another title I have is Evangelist. So it was given to me by our old CEO, who said I was to go preach the good word of EAM. So talking to people like you excellent. is right what I do. Excellent, yep. excellent. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on absolutely. Practical Reliability. It was absolute phenomenal conversation, and I hope that we can do this again oh, yeah. and learn even more about the, the path forward and, and everything that's happening. Well, uh, we we talked about just change within a few months. It's just a matter if it changes another year. Yeah, God. exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, I look forward to having that conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Absolutely, thank you. Awesome. So for uh, Kevin Price, I'm George Williams. Thanks for listening to Practical Reliability. Go make tomorrow better than today. For over 20 years, passionate IBM Maximo users have gathered with their community at Maximo World, a reliability web event. Maximo World brings together the user community, including technical, functional, and strategic business-level roles, IBM business partners, reliability web asset performance marketplace partners, industry book authors, and artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, and digital twin specialists with a focus on reliability and asset management. This year, Maximo World is in Austin, Texas, August 9th to the 11th, 2022. For more information, for Maximo World, visit www.reliabilityweb.com events and click on the Maximo World icon.